It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to another Thursdays with Mary Langston and uh, episodic appearances um, by Trey. And please try to hide your disappointment. Do your best to conceal your disappointment. Actually, I'm disappointed. In fact, I'm so disappointed I may not even go through with it. No, that's 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 my boss telling me that I am to go through with it no matter what. Well, Mary Langston uh, will not be joining us this week. In her absence, uh, to the extent that anything can fill that absence, but in her absence, we will revisit a few of your thought-provoking questions, and there are too many to choose from. But nonetheless, in the interest of time, we've chosen a few. Uh, You've asked about the inner workings of our judicial and legislative systems. You have asked about uh, what is left of my golf game. And there are moments when you just simply wanted an answer to my favorite question of all, which is why, uh, regardless of the topic, why? So let's get started. Hope you have a great week, and we'll be back with more questions next week. We'll get started with our first question, and it comes from David in Illinois, and he writes, Trey, I understand the desire to stop crime before it happens, but our entire system is built upon punishing those who commit crimes after they occur. The problem is with our culture. Do you believe laws can alter culture? He also says that he loves your insight and explanations. So I'm not the only one. No, I just I think it's really cool that my mom would send in a question (laughs) under a nom de plume of David in Illinois. So thank you, mom. Uh, David, those are great questions. Um, And that's probably this is probably not the question for me to begin my new uh, pursuit of pithiness, um, because that's a, a very thought provoking question. And I would probably bifurcate my answers this way. The law both alters our culture and reflects our culture. I mean, who says stealing is wrong? We do. Who says driving at an unsafe speed is wrong? We do. Who says touching someone without their consent is wrong? We do. We decide what's wrong. So from that standpoint, You know, the law is many things. It's structure, it's predictability, it's order. It's our way of defining what is just and what is fair. But it is also our way of saying what is right and what is wrong. So ideally, our law and our culture are in sync. That's the perfect world. They're in sync. That's not always the case. Sometimes culture changes and then the law changes afterward and reflects that cultural change. But in a perfect world... The question is, do you believe laws can alter culture? Yes. But the best laws reflect not just culture, but something broader than culture, like bordering on absolute truth. I mean, there's not a person in the world that thinks that stealing is right. 
Although you do get in, you know, what was that famous play that my wife drugged me to and made me see? Um, Lamest? Is it, yeah, miserable? Less miserable? <laughs> mm. That may not be how you pronounce it. But Jean Valjean stole some bread, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a debate for another segment. I, I think stealing is wrong no matter why you do it, but the but the rationale behind the stealing um could impact what the punishment is, if any. But you don't all of a sudden say it was it's not wrong. I mean it's also wrong to let your family starve. So Yes, there is this interconnectivity between law and our mores and our morality, which is culture. Now, for the other part of the question about criminal investigation and prosecution being reactive, that's the part that really caught my attention. He he understands the desire to stop crime before it happens. But and he's right. Our system is built on punishing those after the fact. Mm. Um, Our system is fully reactive. It is reactive from um, ab initio. It is reactive from the beginning. Some legislative body decides that some type of conduct is unlawful and therefore constitutes a crime. That's a reaction. Something happens, law enforcement reacts and investigates. You know, thinking about a crime is not a crime. Usually talking about a crime is not a crime, although there are exceptions to that, such as threats. But by and large, our system is reactive. But there is nothing to stop us from finding out what leads to crime and acting proactively. Lack of educational attainment can lead to crime. That does not mean people with high school diplomas and college degrees don't commit crimes because they do. Trust me, they do. I spent a lot of time around defendants that had uh, obtained a certain level of educational attainment. But we also know that dropping out of school statistically leads to more interaction with the justice system. So does substance abuse. So does unmanaged anger. So does being a victim of crime yourself earlier in life. All of those things impact your predictability of engaging with the criminal justice system. So why in the world would we not want to prevent crime? Yes, it is reactive, but that just sounds so, you know, fate accompli that, that, that we just have to wait. If your military leader said, yeah, we know a country's about to attack us, but, but we got to wait. You would say, Why? Why would we wait? If your intelligence officials say a terrorist act is imminent, but, you know, we can't be proactive. We just have to wait and see if the bomb actually goes off. We would be outraged. Mm -hmm. There are proactive, prophylactic components to both defense and national security. So why not also with law enforcement? Why not do a better job of anticipating or being prepared? I'll give you a perfect example. Firearm statutes. Murder cases have a lot of jury appeal. The jury gets very engaged. It's serious. A life has been taken. They know it's serious. But just having a gun unlawfully does not have the same jury appeal, which is why often those cases are not prosecuted. But my question is, why not? Why not try to stop the murder by being tougher on assault and battery with intent to kill cases? Why not stop subsequent murders by being tougher on domestic violence on the front end or tougher in firearms cases. Why do we wait until someone is dead 
to actually take crime seriously. There's nothing wrong with saying that our goal is to save lives and we're going to do whatever we can do to save lives and not simply be reactive. I'll I'll give you my last example and then I'm going to move on for the two people that are still with me. But, Mm -hmm. but I do care very much about this. It is a reactive system, but that makes us constantly reacting, which I I don't think people want to do when life is at stake. So, I mean, imagine you're, at the beach and there's a strong riptide or, you know, undercurrent warning at that beach. And what do the lifeguards do? I mean, do they say, go ahead and swim all you want. We're going to do our best to get to you in the order in which you start drowning. Mm-mm. No, they tell you to stay off the beach. The goal is to save people from drowning. The goal is not to save people from drowning. Once they start, the goal is to keep them off the beach until the risk and the threat are over. So there is most assuredly a proactive component to law enforcement. And I think if we did a better job on the proactive side, I'm not talking about that, you know, ridiculous movie that I haven't even seen. It's just the whole concept. I think it was minority report where they can kind of predict who's going to commit crime. I'm not talking about that. Mm. I am talking about figuring out what leads to crime and addressing that so there are fewer victims. Well, thank you, Trey, and thank you, David, for your thoughtful question. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Our next question is from Cliff in Canada. He writes, you really should do a segment on prosecutorial discretion. What is it? What does it apply to? Does it mean that prosecutors are free to decide to ignore prosecution of laws that they don't like? You know what? I picked the wrong week to start trying to be more concise with my answers. (laughs) They're great questions. People had sent. Like, uh, what is one half times three quarters? That would have been a very quick answer. I have no mm-hmm. idea. These are things I, I care a lot about and have actually thought a lot about. So mm-hmm. Cliff, from our friendly neighbors to the north in the great country of Canada, that's a great question. I know we have touched on this some in the past, but it's worth another look. Imagine you're driving down the road and you see blue lights and get pulled over. The officer takes your license and your registration, walks back to his or her law enforcement vehicle, starts walking back towards you, gets you to roll the window down, and gives you a warning. What is that? It's discretion. I mean, do you demand that the law be fully enforced? Do you demand that that officer write you a two or four point ticket? Are you outraged at the notion that you were given a warning or do you drive away in my case, very slowly and be grateful? I mean, imagine you're doing some prank as a kid and it gets out of hand and the cops get involved or you're at a party in college and there's underage drinking and you don't want to engage, but you do a little bit and the cops come. I mean, do you want everyone charged with a crime that stays on their record for the rest of their lives? Are you okay with a diversion program for first time nonviolent offenders? Are you okay with drug court for addicts who engage in 
nonviolent crime to support a habit. It's a trade-off, if you will. We will not give you a record, but you have to get treatment. All of those are exercises of discretion. We have a lot of diversion programs now. We had a lot when I was the DA. We had a program for expectant mothers who use drugs during their pregnancy. So the question is, is jail where you want a pregnant woman? Or do you want her off of drugs so she's healthy and her child has a chance to be healthy? Mm -hmm. What if the pregnant woman robs a bank? Would your reaction be different? I mean, you still ideally do not want pregnant women giving birth in prison. But is your reaction different if the crime is classified as a violent crime? And then where it gets really complicated is what if she robbed the bank because of her dependency on drugs? Would you prosecute her to the fullest extent of the law or would you put her in drug court, which is a discretionary call? That is prosecutorial discretion. What do I do with this case? What if the cops make a case and there's probable cause for an arrest, but there's not nearly enough evidence to convict? I mean, that happens all the time. The cops do their job. They make an arrest based on probable cause. The prosecutor comes in and says, you know what? Just so the listener knows, on a scale of one to 100, probable cause is about 35. On a scale of one to 100, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's about 95. So what if you have enough to make an arrest, but you don't have enough to get a conviction? What do you do? You dismiss the case. But it is the prosecutor making that discretionary call that I don't have enough evidence to convince a jury. What if someone is charged with a crime and you let them plead to a lesser crime because your star witness is serving in uniform overseas and you don't want to make him or her fly back for a trial? So, I mean, like an overwhelming majority of the cases, especially in state court, are, are pled out. They're, you know, some people call them plea bargains. I don't like the word bargain. I call them plea negotiations because a bargain means you're getting something for less than what it's worth. I don't know what a case is worth if you can't get a witness back from Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere overseas. It's a, it's a lot better than dismissing the case. I mean, are you really going to have a soldier fly back because he or she happened to witness a crime? It depends on what the crime is, but all of that, all of that happens and all of it is rooted in discretion and no one really complains. So what we're seeing now with these so-called progressive prosecutors is not any of that. It's not any of what I just described. All of what I described has been going on since well before I was a prosecutor 20-something years ago. What we're seeing now is a substitution of what prosecutors think the law should be. I, I never believed in mandatory minimums for drug cases. I just, they just did not make sense to me. Five sweet and low packets equal to mandatory five years in prison in the federal system. Five sweet and low packets, five Truvia packets in my case, mm-hmm. equals a mandatory minimum five years. In violent crime cases, mandatory minimums make a lot of sense. In nonviolent cases, to me, they did not, but that was not my decision to make. I don't get to change the law. I mean, deciding that certain conduct is okay, even though it's a crime, is not discretion. That is anarchy. 
deciding that you will do what you want to do, regardless of what the law says, because you think it should say something else is not an appropriate use of discretion. Every case is different with unique facts. And prosecutors have to weigh and balance those facts. And it happens all the time, which is why you want prosecutors with good judgment. But deciding ahead of time that you're not going to enforce certain laws, that you're going to act as if something is legal when it is not, that you are going to substitute your judgment for a legislative body's judgment is not an appropriate use of discretion. That is wholesale substituting your opinion when it is not your job to do so. So, yes, prosecutors have to make judgment calls all the time, and I think they should be free to do so. But prosecutors are not and should not be free to decide on their idea of what the law should be versus what the law is. And if you find a prosecutor that does that, then you should make them a former prosecutor as quickly as you can. If they want to decide what the law is, then tell them to run for a legislative job. Mm -hmm. All right. That's a long rant. But as you can tell, I do care about that little notion we call prosecutorial discretion. It's used every day. It just has to be used correctly. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Trey, for answering that question. I think I'm going to have to re-listen to that to take it all in. And thank you, Cliff, for the question. It was a great one. Um, Our last question is from Rachel, and we're going to go a little bit more lighthearted. Trey, she writes, I enjoy your show every week. Growing up in peach country, do you and your family like peaches? What is your favorite kind? I remember going to the peach shed years ago, she says, and seeing all the varieties. Uh, Well, Rachel, first of all, thank you for getting me off of prosecutorial discretion (laughs) and uh, whether or not there should be a proactive component to law enforcement. Um, Mm. But in some ways, this may actually be tougher than those other two. (laughs) Um, Thank you for saying you like my show, Rachel. Yes, I do love peaches. I grew up eating them all the time. And then I became very good friends with a man named Ben Grambling. He was just a kid when I met him. We were teenagers still, I think. Uh, He he is still my friend to this day Um, and will be until the day I die. As, you know, or his mom and dad and siblings and cousins, that whole family has been so good to me. Uh, The Gaines family is another peach family. The the upper part of my county, there's Cooley Farms. There was Caggiano Farms when I was growing up you know my dad was a doctor and back then you know if you wanted to pay in something other than money you could and my dad you know got a lot of got a lot of peaches um but in any event ben Graham's family owned lots of peach orchards in the upper part of spartanburg county and i would as i became friends with ben i would hear these stories about what it was like to pick peaches in south carolina in the summertime it is so hot and you are fighting flies and bugs and just that searing heat of picking peaches and then taking them to the packing plan or taking them to, she mentioned the shed to sell them. And these horror stories I would hear from Ben about getting up early in the morning and you are literally outside the entire day picking peaches until dark. And then your day is not over with because you got to load them and get them to the stand or get them to the 
what we call the packing plant. And it just weighed on me. And my heart grew heavy because I could not enjoy peaches anymore. I'm just kidding. I didn't care about any of what he went through. I didn't care how hot he was or how long his days were. I wanted some peaches. And the ones I loved the most were Georgia Bells, which are also known as the Bells of Georgia. And I love having them cut up and put some sugar on them and then putting them on my cereal or kind of eating them as a snack. And, you know, back then my mom would cut them for me. Mm. And then two very important things happened. Uh, and then when I got married and all of a sudden I no longer lived with a person who would cut my peaches up for me. <laughs> I now lived with a woman who thought that I was capable of cutting my own peaches, <laughs> which I was not and am not, but that was her belief. So I no longer had someone willing to cut the peels off the peaches and cut them up and dab a little sugar on them. That was not one thing that happened. The other thing that happened, which is also very important, is my friend Ben Grambling and his family decided to build a golf course. Mm. And all of a sudden, I discovered that my love of peaches was surpassed by my love of golf. <laughs> so Ben and I started playing lots of golf together in eating far fewer peaches together. <laughs> and I would bet you I have played more rounds of golf with Ben Gramling. He now lives in Charleston and Colorado. He splits, splits his time, but I have played more rounds of golf with that man than probably anybody in the world, maybe except my son, possibly. <laughs> but I digress, Rachel, your question was about peaches and I've gotten off to Colorado in golf. Yes. I love peaches. <laughs> I just need someone to cut them up for me. Hopefully my wife will listen and take pity. I guess somebody out there may be thinking, well, why don't you cut your own peaches? I mean, you're a grown man. Why don't you cut your own peaches? <laughs> uh, because I would risk cutting my finger in the process and that would impact my golf. And we could not possibly <laughs> have that. That is so funny, Trey. I did not expect golf to come from peaches, but you just never know. And I'm very uh, thankful that it did. Well, every, not every word of what I said is true. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I have cut a peach before. Never mm -hmm. in the present, never in the presence of my mother. She would do that <laughs> for me, but I'm sure if I wanted them bad enough, I mean, I guess if I asked Terry, she probably would, but mm -hmm. I mean, she would look at me like, why, why can you not do this? But, <laughs> But Ben Gramlin and his family, big, big, big peach farmers. I'll close out this four hour segment by telling <laughs> you when I, when I first ran for solicitor, I didn't really have a chance in the world. I mean, you look back on it, running against somebody been in office for a long, long, long time. He was popular and Mm -hmm. what have you. And I remember going up to the Gramlin's house and sitting out by the man we call big daddy, big daddy, Ben Gramlin, that's Ben's father. Mm -hmm. And you met him. Yes, sir. And trying to, you like somehow convinced them to take a chance on somebody who'd never been in politics before and really didn't have any chance to win. And, you know, big daddy sitting by a pool said, I'm all, support you and will help you. And so is everybody in my family. Mm. And they did. And the very first 
bit of help that I got running for that office and then later for Congress uh, came from the Gramlings. So mm. thank goodness Ben no longer picks peaches. He's now uh, an incredibly successful real estate developer. But I love peaches. It's probably, I'd say, between peaches and honeydew melon, probably my favorite fruit. Mm. Um, and you live in Spartanburg, you kind of take for granted your easy access to peaches. Um, I used to get some from a, uh, a friend of mine um, who, uh, Chalmers would send me some peaches and then I would divide them and send them to colleagues in the house. Mm-hmm. I remember that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yes. And, you know, probably send them to an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. Just, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, that's who we got along with and lots of, you know, Democrats sent me nice things too. So incredibly popular. Um, so how do I take a relatively straightforward question about peaches and turn it into a 30 minute answer? I don't know. You would think maybe at one point in my life, I used to get paid by the hour. So I like to drag <laughs> things out, but I don't get paid by the hour anymore. I, I don't know why I drag it out, but there you have it. Hopefully if Terry's listening, maybe she'll cut up some peaches. I mean, it's not like I don't want her to get hurt and cut either, but I mean, she's not a golfer. So I mean, I, I just, it's just too, too great of a risk to take. Well, duly noted. Well, thank you, Trey, for answering all these questions. And thank you to our listeners for the questions. We hope that y'all keep sending them our way. They're always so thoughtful and um, they leave me thinking throughout the week. Oh, I can assure you, Mary Langston, if you're really wondering after the length of those three answers, no, no one. I mean, <laughs> almost as a favor to one another, they're not going to send any more questions. That, that's, how, how do you, how do you take three straightforward questions and consume hours and hours of people's time? But uh, we can go back them. to your story at the beginning of this podcast where Lindsey Graham asked that question, and he just. Kept going until they landed. And Biden said, I'll finish the story in the cab on the way to the hotel. I mean, exactly. Wow. Uh, I never asked Lindsay whether that story is true or not. Uh, I mean, usually you would think, well, that's just a funny story. I don't know. That maybe it is true, but. Well, the jury's out on that one. Uh, if I see him again, um, I'll ask him. Um, all right, keep the questions coming despite uh, my, I really am going to make a commitment to get, you know, to be pithier and more concise. But <laughs> today, today was not a good, was not the day for me to start that 12-step program. All righty, thank you all. We will see you all next Thursday. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.